Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Christopher Travis. Now, Christopher, um, he's invented and is well-written and has written himself about a system called True Home. And True Home is the name of his business. He's a design and a designer and a builder um, based in Colorado in, in the USA. But what we're going to talk today about is his True Home workshops and his True Home system, uh, which is a systematic process for understanding clients' needs and emotions. So, Christopher, welcome to Talk Design. It is such a pleasure to have you here. This is a subject that's very close to my heart. Honoured to join you. Um, I'm going to kick off with a little bit of, um, just, just tell us a little bit about True Home and as in your business first, the, the design and build. And then uh, we, I want to kind of loop back to um, some stuff around the workshop. Now, I could give a big, long runway here and tell them that, you know, you've designed all these amazing places and you've used this system for many years, but we will get into some of that along the way. Yeah, so let's, first of all, just sort of that, uh, tell us about True Home Design and Build. Well, uh, the company, the, the actual practice I have now is True Home Design Build, and it is a design build company. Uh, we were a formal architecture firm for a number of years before we moved from Texas to Colorado. Uh, but the, the process itself, which is our, my primary marketing tool and also what our firm is known for, is actually a systematic method for uh presenting information to clients early. It's a programming tool, essentially. So, but it's a very exhaustive one. And it's based around the concept that uh, what we're really trying to do for people is uh, create environments that enhance their lives rather than, so in other words, for us, architecture is really not about the building. It's really about uh, the individuals and the family systems. And so uh, it's a very exhaustive, about 140 page workshop. Uh, it's given to, it has a lot of psychologically oriented questions in it. It also has a lot of exercises and, and they're all based around uh, how I used to practice when I had a lot of problems with clients. <laughs> so, <laughs> or could that be, could that be clients had a lot of problems with you? No, I think I, I'm, I'm hearing you, you know, like that it's that. True. Yeah, that's the same thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's just from the other <laughs> side. You're not, yeah. <laughs> you're not getting me or <laughs> I'm not getting you. Um, That's what, that's what kicked it off. So does that mean that you um, have just a wide eclectic mix of the type of house you do, or do people come to you for a certain signature when it comes well, to the design side? Well, what we sell is that we can tailor environments very specifically to individuals and families. And, and uh, so, you know, that's why we have, it's just typically couples. This is in our residential work, it's typically couples. And uh, so each of them does their own workshop independently because, uh, you know, people really do have uh, divorces and remodeling jobs. That's just, uh, you know, really is true. 
And uh, we did, you know, most architects that work with residential settings, they, they have to be have psychologists just to survive, particularly with couples. Marriage counselor, the, you know, um, uh, child, child whisperer, um, horse whisperer, dog wrangler. Yeah, it all comes with the territory. Right. And then you're expected to draw something. Right. <laughs> well, that's really what happened. That, that I, uh, you know, I'd always been building pretty much most of my career uh, other than maybe 10 or 15 years of the 40, uh, I was building and designing. Yeah. So I'd have yeah. both sides. I also worked uh, in, the, in the late 70s and the first part of the 80s. I worked just as a general contractor. I was originally actually a restoration builder. So I came into construction through historic work. And uh, the reason that was basically because I knew nothing else. My mother's a historian and I was raised in bizarre frontier outfits where I had to go be a docent in period homes. And otherwise I didn't know anything about architecture. And I was a, you know, a 23 year old hippie that was a songwriter and, you know, I had no training whatsoever. So I basically lied my way onto a construction site. I was working for the Austin American States because I, I am a writer and uh, my mother's a journalist also. And, um, uh, and basically, they had a purge of people with long hair and the editorial department. And uh, they told us we had to cut our hair. We all decided that was a moral uh, abortion and we refused and they terminated this. So I already had a baby. I was probably 24 years old or three years old and I get a job. So I, I, I developed the practice that really has led to my entire career, which is to go out to some job site where I have no idea what I'm doing lie my butt off about my experience and then work until they fire me and do that two or three times by that time i've picked up whatever that trade is at least at the basic enough level not to get tired right? <laughs> that, that's also how i ended up with an architecture firm i just kept amping it up over time always saying i knew more than and uh, eventually and i learned most of my trade skills and also my design skills by either hiring other people yeah. <laughs> that work for me <laughs> or you know working as a as a builder working for you know, high-end residential architects and uh, so i did that for quite a long time and then as uh, uh, by the end of the 80s i think i had mentioned to you before i decided that residential architecture was broken and yeah. it's not really functional. I, I want to talk about that separately uh, but i'm just I'll, I'll write a note to that because um, yeah, whether residential architecture or not is broken and how True Home um, unbreaks it. Anyway, we'll come back to that because you were saying about how, how you went and learned the trades so, or, or understanding of the trades and understanding of the processes by hiring others or being hired by others. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the biggest things is, is that when you... <laughs> like you said, you know, you walk onto a construction site and you'd lie, lie your way into the job and a few weeks and they may work out that you don't know enough or they work out you know enough by that time and the job's over or whatever it is. But when you're thinking on your feet at um, that and physically on your feet and having to ask people and everything else, the rapid learning that you do to survive, um, there'd be some psychology around that that would be fascinating i'm sure you know like when somebody throws you off a cliff and uh you 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 survive it you probably work out what you did on the way down to make the landing you know 
if you if you yeah, negotiated yeah. a tree or whatever, you'll never forget those lessons. The right, key lessons. The distinction for me is I was thrown off a cliff when I was like 23 or 4 and I still haven't hit the ground. So, <laughs> You're still on the free pole. <laughs> what part of, um, are you from Texas originally? Yes, I'm actually a seventh generation Texan. My uh, family came there when it was the country. And, uh, and so we, from where? From where? Oh, uh, 1820s, 1830s. Wow. Wow. Well, and, and what, what town was it? a country? Come yeah, on. I, knew that, I knew it was a country. It was a republic. <laughs> and um, in fact, I'm a bit of a fan of Texas. Um, in fact, it's the only um, state that can still actually break the union of the United States. So it can actually uh, go independent. I'm heavily right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been to it at the last few years. Yes. So what town or what um, area did you grow up in? Or not grow uh, up in Texas? I was born in Dallas. I oh, uh, yeah. uh, I was raised by a single woman, and so we had a very uh, sort of desperate few years before she married uh, someone who wasn't my father, and. Uh, and so we were up in the panhandle of the cotton farmers uh-huh. steps and, and in my, all of my her parents and everyone were all farmers and ranchers so it's quite rural and then in the first grade we moved to waco texas yeah waco of, yeah uh, that's chip to, and joanna Gaines country these days yeah yeah, yeah. they run that as well they 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 control the entire economy as far as i can tell yeah 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 i think that just sort of like you know that just off political careers those two <laughs> yeah so anyway i went to school in of texas i didn't i didn't get anywhere but i was there for several years <laughs> right yeah so did, did, did you um you weren't at baylor isn't baylor university the uh waco uh, university yeah yeah I, um, well, I learned how to build a telescope at Baylor, and I learned some early biology at Baylor. But this was all when I was a you know elementary school child. So yeah, right, right, fantastic. And then living in Waco, generally Baylor's not cool. It's just like everybody in Waco hates everybody in Dallas because they killed Kennedy. You know, so yeah, it's, yeah. It's well, Waco, yeah, unfortunately right. as well. Yes, um, both of them <laughs> have that stigma, don't they? Um, of of being the past. There's a. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people who have been killed in Texas, but they just weren't as uh, dramatic or as famous. Um, well, they weren't were an actual president, most of them. But, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I didn't try to kill LBJ, but you know, <laughs> weren't successful. I must say that um, I've lived in uh, Dallas, Texas. When I say I've lived there, I um. When I was in my 20s, I went there and stayed there for about six months, well, not even quite six months, a bit less. Um, my girlfriend's uh, brother-in-law and sister went and lived there, and, and he was studying theology at Dallas Seminary. And so we went and hung out with them. We traveled around a lot, but I got a big dose of Dallas from that. And yeah, one of the things I did recently in the last about five years is I went and uh, did the JFK tour thing again, you know, did one of those tours on it, um, which was pretty fascinating as well. And then I go to Austin a lot 
I, I spend a fair bit of time in Austin. I've got a lot of really good friends in Austin. Uh, Austin's the, the, the only place to actually live in Texas, in my opinion. Unless, yeah. you're, unless you're far away from someone in a rural area. So, yeah. As far as cities, Austin's where it's happening. So. It's, yeah, for all my town. And yeah. you being a songwriter as well, there's probably part of that that hangs with um, Austin as well. You know, you were saying earlier that you, you wrote songs back in the early days. And so when you think of that, Austin's such a music town. There's something beautiful about that I as know. well. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, but that's where I, that's where I sort of grew up as an artist that where it's yeah. also where I took my first LSD, which is what led also to this process I used. And, <laughs> <laughs> so bring on Austin. Yeah. It's uh well, you would you would have met, remembered um the armadillo and places like that in Austin. Yeah, we yeah, used to go to Armadillo. Yeah. Willie, even before Willie, there's also a Vulcan gas company. I'm of that era. Austin was the hate Asbury of the South back when yeah. all that was going on. So and it was so it was half cowboys and half hippies. And they didn't get along. So. Yeah, well, I, I, I've heard yeah. so many stories of it. Like, they were so opposed. And even just um, in the music scene, everything, but, you know, there was country and there was rock and it was so opposed. And, you know, the armadillo is kind of the melting pot that brought those things together. And, you know, look at Austin today. It's, uh, yep, there's plenty of cowboys and plenty of herpes and they all uh, just <laughs> float along together. <laughs> uh, Austin's kind of... So the downtown and inner loop people are still pretty weird purposefully. That's keeping Austin weird. Keeping Austin weird. Now it's just so good. When I was there, it was 200,000 people and 40,000 of them were UT students. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, so that's how big it was. And now it's like, what, a million and a yeah, half, a million or and half or something. Yeah, and all of them have got two trucks and a car and a gun. Yeah. It's, <laughs> anyway, enough about that. Let's get on to True Home and just the, just A, if you want to tell us how you got to the process. And as you said, you know, problems with clients. Um, but then also what the basis of it is, what, how, how the thinking works and why, why you developed it and why you actually decided to share it. So many people don't share things. Um, why you decided to share it. But, um, yeah, tell us about the True Home process and the workshop and what happens um, so that people get a good understanding of why it's such a powerful tool. Well, for the technical description of it would be that what we are doing is mapping the automatic, uh, by automatic, I mean unconscious, subconscious reactions of people to aspects of their immediate space. And, so, and we do that in a very systematic way in a lot of different kinds of domains around a lot of different subjects, but they're all directly related to pragmatic issues that uh, occur between clients and architects in practice. And so what, and really what it's based on essentially is just neuroscience. Uh, you know, you're, most of the uh, who we are is created in when we're relatively young and it's uh, you know we view ourselves as rational beings but we're really not you know what, what we what we are is people that uh react automatically and then come up with a good explanation so we don't look foolish. we're just good liars well i i, I love that but um that we're rational beings that's a story we tell ourselves for highly irrational right. people yeah 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's so, why the law has that problem. thing saying, is it reasonable? You know, if you're a designer and you're working with a client trying to get clear about what their criteria are for a home and what would make them happy and therefore that so they'll pay you, mm-hmm. then uh, it's very uh, difficult to work with people who are utterly irrational but are claiming that they aren't. And so, <laughs> and by that, it's very, very bad data. Yeah. So, for a practicing architect, is much, much higher production costs, much more common that clients clients walk off halfway through and don't pay you. Uh, You know, you can't manage conflicts between participants and stakeholders very well, and uh, you're you're because of sort of distance approach of that uh, architects are sort of trained to maintain. Uh, what I discovered is that there's, a, you know, a lot of people, there, people have generally a, a respect for architects, but they don't trust them to uh, listen to them or to um, make their priorities, the client's priorities, their own. And that's not really true of the real world with architects, but I'm saying there's a great deal of that point of view of, in, in new clients. So... Uh, so I was just saying, I hear what you say with that. You know, I think that generally they um, they respect, you know, architecture as a profession and they respect design as a, you know, as a function of that. And um, one of the things that they do is, is usually within this, um, you know, scope of business, you're asking people to take massive leaps of faith with massive amounts of money. No, that's, that's another complication because it's normal clients, not the super wealthy. I would get some of those too, and they're a little different. But for most people, this is one of the largest investments of their entire mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most emotionally concentrated. There's so much sort of, uh, from a psychological standpoint, attachment orientation that people have around their homes. And so that th- so really, what happens, I think, pragmatically, is that we end up grow up in environments where we're always utterly engaged, and essentially our environments build us. The interaction between our emotional growth and the environment is who we are. It's yes. not some secondary thing. It's, it's and so uh, so what happens is, you know, when you're young, depending on your sort of inherent temperament, you uh, things happen. And you either have peak experiences or you have things that upset you. And in, in a pragmatic or simple way of describing it is, you make a decision. Like my mother, will I'll never make it with my mother. She'll never think I'm cool. Or, you know, men aren't good. And, and these things don't even have to be legitimate traumas. They can be just an experienced child interprets as a trauma. Yeah. The same thing happens with positive peak, peak experience, effective reactions. And so what happens is people begin to associate at a very high level of detail in different features of environments. You know, this includes furnishings, art, space sizes, artificial styles, everything, and, and with emotional outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it's totally separated from their aesthetic sense. And so what happens is people who might think something looks really great in an architectural magazine can duplicate that at home. And when they move in, to them, it feels like they're in a hospital or something like that. So 
So there, it makes it very, very difficult because you have this whole people don't really view themselves that way. They think they're making racial choices or taste around some sort of aesthetic uh, judgment, something like that. And really, uh, that's all a pretense. You know, so, what's really happening is that people are built a certain way. And if the architect cannot get inside that and then get them to think about, you know, begin to think this way, because that's essentially what the workshop does. It teaches the client how to think past the surface. And right. so that, and, and so, uh, so what happens is you just get vastly better data. The, the programming, you know, is you just get much more effective, a much higher percentage of the things that you get as early stage criteria will actually work. They will like it, and you will get paid. So, get, <laughs> apart from the paper, yeah, which is all important when you've chosen it as a business. Now, can you give me an example of when you say you know you'll get vastly better data? Um, sort of something that would be often missed or, or not not seen um, versus something that because of doing the the client doing the true home workshop that would you would find out like. My wife does, um, uh, she's a business coach and she does quite a bit of psychometric, um, you know, testing stuff on, with people and she can she can tell them stuff they don't know about themselves by doing it. Um, so can have you got any kind of, I don't know, simple examples? I know that's a hard question to answer as well. But there must, uh, I, there must I, be I some that have made you laugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't always make me laugh, but, but they certainly make me uh aware that i'm in a world that has very uh unclear boundaries <laughs> mm. so i'll give you a lot of them here are some that uh are have repeated in other words that there have been numerous couples that had certain versions of this yeah uh so it, it was probably in the maybe the first year that i started using this workshop which originally was an 18 or 19 page something i did in a weekend you know it was not and uh but that the it was about a 3,000 square foot house and i was making the presentation after we were presenting the design and they all came in the front door i and told, they loved the living area. They loved the kitchen. They loved all that stuff. We walked back into their, uh, I'm talking about in the presentation, not yeah, in yeah. person. Yeah, in <laughs> person. In the imagination. Yeah, right. We, we got to the master suite. And, you know, it had a, a, two, had a bathroom, a large master bath off of it. And the master bath had a vanity with two seats in it, which would be typical for a house that size with a couple. You know, it's pretty logical. Well, they saw that and they just said, oh, no, 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 we don't need that. We, that's just a waste of money. Take that second sink out. And so what I'd learned, by, even by then, I'd learned I had to be a devil's advocate in these situations. Uh -huh. So basically, I just asked them to describe their morning routine. Mm -hmm. and, and it turned out they've been having a fight every single day for 18 years in the bathroom. But it had nothing to do with having to say with the same two sinks. It's because he would not clear the whiskers that he got into the sink out every morning. And they never thought, well, maybe if we had two sinks. Okay, yeah. So it's that irrational. It'd be like right? having one set of underwear and yeah. somebody <laughs> some, somebody gets it first. <laughs> the other one has to go without. <laughs> Uh, another one is um, I had this couple that was a minister and his wife 
and uh, they their their uh, property was on a bit of a grade. So he was very fascinated by the idea of having a walkout basement. And when I first met them, they were almost at World War III. I mean, she was incredibly upset, very angry at him. This is in the sales call, right? Yeah, right. This is <laughs> I mean, so. Yeah, early but, days. Uh, so basically, after they 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 started doing the homework, uh, I we were walking through the house, and she and I was asking her to describe certain aspects of what her mornings were like, things like that. And it turns out the woman every day gets up, holds her breath, and runs into the her master closet, grabs all her clothes while not exhaling, and runs out. She's been doing this for I don't know twenty years, and yeah. never. Yeah, I guess she might be claustrophobic. <laughs> Are you so, serious? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the outcome was there were windows in her closet. And oh, her, I literally saved their marriage with that. That was how serious the, the issue was between them, the misunderstanding. You know, and but just the, the, the genius is, is that you, um, the, the, the sync one, yeah, we've, I, I think that most um, designers would relate to that. Um, but the walk-in closet, I reckon the genius is, is that you actually found the conversation. Um, that she actually told you of that thing. Her husband probably didn't know that she was doing that. You know? <laughs> oh, no, actually, that's what saved their marriage. It, once he did, once he realized that, he started having a lot of empathy for a situation that he didn't have before, and that's how she was feeling, as though he just did not care about her. He did not care about how yeah. she felt. And, of course, she didn't know that she was claustrophobic. She just thought that was life, you know? So, yeah, she thought he was doing it too. They're very convoluted, they're very individual. There, there, are, there are many, many of these types of associations that uh, you know that are seem to be you know more frequent amongst different people, but there are others that are just bizarre. I mean they're just they are individuals and, and and that's true not just with negative things like those two stories, but also with things that that are powerful supports psychologically and emotionally that that we can bring into because that's essentially what we do in the workshop if you want to think about it in a real uh simple sort of way uh just we call them building blocks all these many 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 the data we get we call them building blocks so what you're doing is you're showing them many many images and you're asking them to just point out things in there. And there's a whole bunch of rules. The whole workshop occurs in a metaphoric context so that we don't have them editing their communication around money or their insecurities around their own tastes. And all these things. So there are rules to the workshop, like you know, the first one being you have all the money in the world. Yeah. And you, you, the second one is that you um, uh, have impeccable taste. You know, I mean, Calvin Klein's digging through your trash to just figure out how you do it, you know. <laughs> and last one is that you, know, you need to fully and completely communicate. So you can't withhold communication. But they're told to, that everything I care about is all reactions. I'm not interested in their opinions. I'm not interested in their, I'm only interested in their history so that I can know about what were the emotional outcomes of the space, places they've lived in before. And uh, so that's how you do the workshop. You, it, it, there's so no pressure. It's a game, essentially. It's set up as a game. 
It's gamified, yeah. yeah. Huh. And uh, so, uh, you know, what, what, what it is, is it's a whole series. The, the first exercise outside of a real simple vision statement is that you, you have what's called sight conditions, but it's the sight in your head. So <laughs> what we're talking about is, like we want to see who, what's already there before we start the deconstruction or design. So this would be all their prejudices about architects or what do they think about realtors, what do they think about builders, what do they think about each other. And how whether they pay their bills on time, whether they right. like to argue them. Um, well, well it, would, it would be those things, but this is just their opinion. Yeah. You know, right. yeah. And so uh, this no, it's just that it's their assumptions and biases that you know are going to impact the relationship with you, with their other cohabiting uh, people. And so, that, so that's kind of how you start. You just start with that by outing, you know, what do they, how are they already set up to respond to this guy or woman who's sitting there trying to talk to them about designing their home? So, so when you, what you call it a workshop, um, mm -hmm. and that sort of in my mind springs to, you know, oh, look, you're in a room with, um, you know, 500 other people and you're all learning something at the same time. Clearly, that isn't how the workshop works. Um, now, now, this is this is a document people take home. Yeah. Take home. Now, I have done this. I I don't use the same process when I'm doing commercial or nonprofit jobs, things like that. Yeah. Because then you're working with different kinds of uh, stakeholders, uh -huh. and really the only kinds of work I ever get like that are very high touch kinds of projects. So I'm usually working with a board or uh, yeah. you know stuff like that. And in that situation, I do what are much more like seminars, something like what you're talking about. Sure. Right. It's a same kind of process, but it's not it's not as detailed, and but it uses a lot of the same types of methods. And whereas in the residential version, which is most of what I do, uh, it, it's it's really just a huge questionnaire that it has a lot of sort of perspective information in it. And and that that, that uh, kind of tries to shift their their uh, thinking to the way we look at it, which is what's going to be the outcome of how of your experience when you get in this place. What how are you going to feel in these rooms specifically? Not just will I feel good or bad? And so yeah, will I feel excited or relaxed or um, nervous or will I feel um, yeah, well, sleepy? Uh, I don't know, like whatever <laughs> it is. Yeah, right. But we we have so we have a, there's a, there's other exercises where you do exactly that. Where we're basically it's a pretty simple questionnaire. It's just you're walking into each of these rooms that we've identified by now. Now tell us how you want to feel, and then we give them a whole list of of individual things. Some of which are emotions, so it's mm -hmm. a feel. It can also be contextual. It means so like, what is the room about? So it could be family. It could be welcome as an entryway. It can be, and so and so. Th this is done with every single room in the house, and it, and so we give them. It's all kinds of people. You know, bathrooms could be cleanliness, privacy, all these you know different things. Yeah. And then when we actually put out the, the plans directly under the name of the room in italic are the emotional outcomes that we're targeting. All right. I see. And I'm presuming the journey as to 
Um, what at the minute they see those emotional pieces, they're connected to the journey that discovered those. That's where it is for them. I have this thing that I say to clients often when they're talking about um, their homes or, or the home we're going to design for them. And uh, I often like to ask them about their laundry. You know, it's one of my kind of fun game things. I ask them about their laundry. And because most people either have a lot of thought about it or very little thought about it. And, and then I like to segue straight to their main bedroom, their, their, their master suite or their main bedroom, and um, sort of like flip their emotions because, the, you know, my point to them is, is one, one space is very different from the other. If it isn't, then what do we need to do to identify the nuances between them? You know, mm -hmm. it's a, and, and male and female on both of those are so different as well. And then finding out, you know, um, how the primary use or the primary outcome will be um, and how it interacts with the home and with the, you know, the people that are in the house and, you know, like just, just those things. And anybody who's been in this industry for a while can see patterns emerge, but to have something that's systematic, that, actually that that's the that's the difference between you know brainstorming and maybe getting you know 30 40 percent of the right information out making up the other 60 or 70 percent in your own head as an assumption um versus no, I, I, systematic. That, that's what, it's actually that kind of outcome is where i went from just trying to solve a problem to getting the way i am now which is obsessed so I just had this long history. I was actually trained as a, a life coach and stuff. I, I'm, I, from looking at my uh, bio, you can tell I'm all over the place. Okay. So, so I was, I was I doing like that. All that busy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just one of those busy people. I'm busy and diverse also. Much <laughs> more like uh, he can't figure out what he wants to do. You know, busy so. and experienced. I think that's the two things. Yeah. That's just a reframe on those words. <laughs> so, anyway, that, that was all it was. I, 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 when I first hired the, uh, the registered uh, architect of record, I kind of got intimidated. Okay, now I'm going to be a real architecture firm. So I, I instead of doing the way I'd done it before, because a lot of this I was already sort of intuitively doing. I didn't have the process around it. I just sort of was thinking that way. Mm -hmm. and, um, so I, uh, I when we first formed that firm, this is the first time I became a real architecture firm, uh, and uh, and. Uh, the first two clients we took, we started having the very same problems that I had seen in all the other architects I've worked with. And I'm yeah, like, right. oh, maybe it's not the architects. Maybe it's the clients, you know. Just and maybe so it is. How many, how many firms have you been in and how many um, places have you been, whether it's architecture or whatever, where they go, this would be an amazing business if it wasn't for the clients? For the right. customer, <laughs> yeah, which is the lifeblood of their business. Well, well, that was that was exactly why I did. I was really tired of the, the uh, you know, because I had had clients who we did a prelim in the more traditional way, come in and just 
you know, actually, this has happened right before all this. The client just took it. We got all the way through the design and they left and they didn't pay me and they built it with someone else. No. <laughs> and I went, this is bad. This is not good business, you know. Yeah, right. So that's how I was when I first did this. And so I just sat down on the weekend because I, I sort of, well, a lot of this, I think, was, it was really what happened is that I sort of psychological and writing and, and my personal work and things like that and my training as a life coach, it was a separate part of my life. And it just became basically integrated into my practice. And that's that all happened really in a period of a month. So I've got a, I've got a segue back to life coach here. What possessed you to want to be or want to study being a life coach? Um what what was the what was the thing that clicked in your head and went, um, I'm going to do this and help all these other people with it? Well, do, have you ever met any therapists or psychologists? There's a reason why they choose that career. You know, I know because that's why I did it too. Only you know, only crazy people become psychologists and therapists. Sam Goslin. <laughs> and so that, that's really what it was. I, I had I came up with a, a lot of issues out of a childhood. And so from the time I was 18, 19 years old, I was, you know, this was the, the late 60s. And so there's a lot of experimentation going on. And I just kind of got in the in the uh, counterculture. And, and you know, it was just an open slate. You could do anything. Discovery, yeah. Yeah, and so I was doing all kinds of comparative religion things. I was I was church and religion hopping. I was studying occult phenomena, you know, whatever it was. I was 23 or 4 and doing a lot of drugs. So, you know, and uh, so so I, I that just never stopped. I just got very interested in it. And then it, it, and it went from being that kind of fringy stuff to getting more and more interested in a little more serious psychological things and also yeah. system, system science and a bunch of other things. Cause I was a, I was a big science fiction geek when I was a kid or well, until I was 35 really, but yeah. You know, right. So uh, I, it was all these things that sort of coalesced. So the truth is I never really stopped that sort of thing. It, mm. it was, it was like, it was like know yourself. Mm -hmm. you know? So, so I get that every collective learning. Yeah, so actually, life coaching was just a, a series of programs that uh, I got very serious about. So I became an, an assistant, or you know, a person that supported the person that was training people. Yeah, and then, then they got to train me. And and you know, it's not clinical work. So you know, you're really just helping yeah. push past. Uh, you know, their own limitations and see possibility and things like that. But I've done that enough and done it successfully enough that I knew how to, you know, I'm not a great listener, but I learned there were situations where I could listen. Uh -huh. and, uh, and and so I was, you know, I already had a sort of part-time practice with that going on. And then really by the, well, before I created the workshop, I started, I'm also a voluminous reader. I think I told you I'm an mm -hmm. autodidact. I don't I didn't. I went to school, but I never got any degrees. So yeah. everything I know is really from reading the books written by smart people. <laughs> so, 
so I, I and that's how I got through school in the first place. I was a horrific student, but I was so such an avid reader that I could bluff my way through most courses. You know? you could. <laughs> it was a lot like the, it was a lot like how I got that first painting and carpentry job, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so that's really what happened. I just did that for a very long time, and my businesses grew and got bigger. And I, 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 even though most of my career was in design and construction, I also for a while ran a manufacturing organization, and I had, you know, I, I had. A, Companies with pretty many employees. Yeah. And, um, so I, I just got to the point where I was having more fun doing that than I was doing anything else. So I quit doing everything else. And those two things merged. Yeah, and, right. And yeah, that's really what it was. That's so it was really like a personal that. quest that involved something that was something I could contribute to other people. Exactly. There, yeah. Well, that's the couple of things that come out of this for me were. One was um, you wanted to contribute to others. Um, and so being able to do that with your skills of um, understanding and, and, you know, that cognitive side of it, being able to contribute back to them so that they took a better journey. The other is, is the love of like construction and building and you know, making things, being a, a, a builder um, beyond yeah. the same sense of, you know, hammers and nails, but a builder of things. You're a builder of people. You're a builder of systems. You're a builder of houses. Um but you're a builder of, like with True Home, you're a builder of a method. And well, that, that too, right. But, but really, you're, you're a person that's very intuitive because I think as I've gotten older, because now I'm quite a lot older, uh, I really have come to realize that, that, that it's, it's, it's really not about architecture, it's not about construction and stuff. I just want to make things. It's something, yeah. anything that it's all, I was making songs. I was, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was you're making. A um, builder. You're a builder. Yeah, like I, you build things, you make things. Exactly. Yeah. And they personality characteristic of mine. And I think it's, you know, it's what I always tell people about why someone would go into residential design or construction. Because I don't, it's by far not the most profitable in, in residentials. You know, you can make money at it, but it's not where the money is. What I've always told people is, you know, people that do this, they're bored easily. They can't stand doing the same thing all the time. So at least in residential, the jobs are, you know, they're, they're not that long. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> as you say, they're bored easily and um, they want to help people solve problems. They want to use all their skills, um, but they don't want it to go on forever. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's right. They want to. And, uh, and they probably they have. You project stuff because it gets boring when you start implementing. Yeah, there's, there's probably a little piece where there's um, a, a piece of ego attached to it in the sense of helping somebody realize part of their dream. And then the other part is, is being able to drive past something and say, I did that. Um, not, no. many, not many jobs do you get to put monuments around the neighborhood, you know, like. Right. Um, right. right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what draws people to our culture. I think so. I, I think, think so. It's just survival and money. But yeah. But, uh, but architecture is different. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's the thing that has been the most rewarding because, you know, I've done this stuff. For, it's been 
really almost 21 years I've been doing this with clients. Yeah. I started, yeah. so it's a long time and it's a lot of clients. So, and uh, the difference between that and what I think of as normal practice is that you're actually crafting, helping someone craft a life. Yeah, and that 100%. Is a more profound way to relate to a client than is typical. And, and so, and it, even though they may not, they don't need to know, nor do they care about all the technical or, or psychological or scientific background of what you're doing. But what they do understand, they, they do get this, particularly women. They, women seem to have, uh, on average, at least let's put it this way, women over, say, 35 anyway. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's all women, but I'm not going to diss the men until they get a little older, okay? So, <laughs> women, truthfully, in residential make the majority of decisions, and that's yeah. probably good because they have a much more sense, of much, it's much easier for them to think about spaces related to emotion. Higher intuition like, with those things. Exactly. Yeah. Pragmatics, that's the two things that drive them. And so, and so and that's really useful for this particular approach because... What you're really trying to do is, is get them to see that, that that's really what they want. And I have a very, by the way, you know, we're going to see each other at a marketing event this couple of weeks for architects. Well, yeah. I, I have something to offer there because I have a phenomenal close rate on sales. And it's, it's, it's one thing is just because I don't, there's no, I have no competition with this. I wish yeah. I did. I've been trying to get competition for 20 years, but I don't. So, I mean, I literally close probably about 85% of my sales calls. It's ridiculous. So you've and got to make sure. You, yeah. you, ha you have to be very careful in the first part of the selection because if, if not, you've got to get yourself out of doing the job for them if you didn't like them. I, I oh, have this... Um, well, well I, I would chase the money up until I was uh, late 80s. And then I had enough of not very pleasant clients that now it's a two-way interview. Well, I, I clients that, you know, I'm interviewing them. I tell them that. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a, a fabulous chat with a, a, an architect from Alabama called uh, Jeffrey Dungan. It was one of my first podcasts, and it just resonates with me so many times, this little comment. Um, he designed some beautiful homes, like really, really beautiful homes, and uh, very traditional and uh, I'm talking to Jeff and I said to him, so, you know, you must have some, uh, some you must get some incredible projects or something like that. And he goes, mm, yeah. He said, it's not about projects. And I, I literally like leaned into the screen and went, here's, here's something. He said, it's about the people. Mm -hmm. He yeah. said, great people bring great projects. Yeah, I, I think that's. I can true. only work I, with them. Yeah, no, I, 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 I did not get that. I, you know, I came up from nothing, and I was uh, always had to make a living, and always had children, and mm -hmm. uh, so I, I really was for maybe the first twenty years of my career, just get the money, get the job, you know. Uh, and happily, I had a, I got, this, I told you I'd also uh, got involved in another business for a very short, uh, about, about three years, I got romanced into being the president of a large manufacturing company that made hot tubs and rubble baths. 
And uh, that was, was also involving relatives, you know, banker, banker, in law. And uh, that went about three years, grew incredibly fast, and then collapsed in this horrible bankruptcy. And uh, a lot of the things that, that changed in my life changed out of the adapting to that bankruptcy. Yeah. Basically, because we, we, we suddenly, we, our kids were ready to go to college. We had no money. We had not properly saved, even though I may have made a good income. And all of a sudden, we had no money. I had no business. And, uh, and uh, so our reaction to that, this probably something to do with that question about being a life coach, was I sat down, <laughs> and, sat down and said, okay, we're going to start our life over. Let's do what we want this time. And so, yeah, we've got a clean slate. We don't have to carry any baggage into out. it. Yeah, and that's what we did. We just sat down. We said we're sick of living in the city. Uh, we don't want to work with jerks anymore. We uh, we want to be out in places in nature. And 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 uh, it was amazing. It was like once you begin to have a, a real powerful vision, especially after a trauma, uh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. uh, of, of what it is you want to be that before you were self-limiting. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Stuff just starts showing up. And that's exactly what happened. Do you and know? So, uh, so that was what I, that's what I switched. I, and, spent, uh, I spent Saturday and Sunday uh, this weekend, last weekend, with a couple called Barbara and Alan Pease, and they are the body language experts of the world. Um, they've worked with, you know, royal families to Russian leaders to whatever it is. And um, I was doing a a weekend with them and they went bankrupt. They got ripped off by somebody who, you know, was an accounting financial firm and they went bankrupt to the tune of, you know, well, they didn't actually go bankrupt. This is the thing. They traded their way out of it, but they went to the brink of bankruptcy to just the tax department, I think, was $4 million they owed. Um, and, and they went from, you know, like not private jets, but big boats and these kind of things, living a very big lifestyle to um, suddenly owing more money than they had and, uh, and, and losing an incredible amount of money. And they got the clean slate. They were already super wealthy before that. They got the clean slate, and then that changed everything. They they said we're going to write best-selling books on body language, and they've done that to huge success ever since. Um, which is yeah, pretty incredible. But the same sort of story. They got a clean slate yeah. to go from. Um, I think there's something about about having experiences that disrupt your view of reality uh, and your view of yourself, that if you're a person who has some connection to your internal self, gives you opportunities you would never have gotten if you had not gone through that. You've become resourceful as well as a creative. You know, like that whole thing of, um, you know, uh, that, that the way that when adversity hits, there's some people who lie down and get run over by it. And there's other people that jump out of the way of it and then go, Oh, okay. Just escape past that one. How do I get, you know, done properly? How do I get this thing? You know, um, what is it they say? Is it something like adversity is the mother of invention or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, one in sequence before the other. So yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, be, I'll crash, be run over, and then be uh, raised up. The, the, <laughs> the thing is, is that for you know most people, or I think I could comfortably say most people, the biggest um, problem is is that they need to get run over or disaster happen for them to make the change you know it's the person who starts exercising when they got the the the, the illness you know um as opposed to before it even though they knew it would could come you know it's like it takes something to turn the switch and you know when that switch hit for you you you, you went right we're not going to work for jerks we're not going to work for people who didn't don't pay us we're not going to do these things we're not going to do these things we are going to do these things these are what we're going to do and the minute you say these are what we're going to do um life changes you know yeah, but we, otherwise you'd have just kept going paying right. the bills yeah. yeah it's a it's a fascinating thing that i want to touch on um so the fact that uh that you know, you don't have a professional background in, in the, or a trained background in psychology. However, you do have a very, very close friend and um, is Sam Gosling and Sam Gosling's a professor, Sam Gosling. And I just also want to say for everybody listening, whilst Christopher doesn't have a trained background in this, um, you can find him written up in the New York Times and uh, a bunch of other notable places for what he has done. So don't take it lightly. Um, this is this is big. And then Sam Gosling, who is um, yeah, pretty famous in his field as well, is kind of like a I don't know whether he's a co-partner in your in your dastardly design, or whether he's oh, a, a, a co-conspirator in the outcomes it can bring. Or, but tell well, us about he, Sam and that. He's an extraordinary friend, but really, it, it, what happened is he was already quite preoccupied with what he calls the psychology of space. He, he's a he's a, mm -hmm. he's a researcher originally. He started studying personality around animals in the beginning, and. Uh, and really how I met him was he had a whole lab at the University of Texas that was associated with this research he was doing about human beings and how they express themselves in their, in their uh, possessions and stuff like that. And I was at, that was at a point when I was trying to become a big time internet mogul and take true home into, you know, and so I could make my billions, you know, having sure. faith yeah. in the poems. Yeah. It was going to be true home. But, True now, home social that media. Was the second collapse of a business there. But anyway, the problem <laughs> is I was, I was looking at the UT website for a second progression. And uh, and I came on this guy's uh, website. I went, who the heck is this? Wow, he's doing stuff kind of like me. And uh, so I, 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 I think I emailed him and then I told him what I did. And he asked me to send him a copy of the workshop. And then I was living about you an hour send, send me Send me fifty nine yeah. ninety five, and I'll send you a copy. Well, no, no, <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. I, I give them away to free to some PhDs. Okay? So, <laughs> basically, they're, they're working on something similar to what I'm working on. Yeah. So uh, he, so he, he called me back in about a week, and he says, "I need to meet you." So he had me come up to Austin, and he met me at some downtown in a grill, and and we were sitting across the table from one another, and that was still when I had a great deal of admiration for PhDs. Yeah, I've so many now. I'm not quite that 
naive, but <laughs> no. I, I was then. So I'm just like, oh, this guy's paying attention to me, and he's so smart. And, all this. and he is acting really weird. I didn't know well enough to know what is, you know, what what's what's going on with him? How come he's acting like this? Uh, and so I basically asked him, and he just said, you know, man, I, I truly think you're ahead of my field in this. I think I've never seen anything like this. And so I mean, he just blew my skirt up. It was this enormous uh, boost of my self-esteem, and, and to, because I was doing something very, very fringy. Yeah. And, uh, and he's just a very serious guy. So he he just started sponsoring me. He, we, we, you know, we he, he came. And we gave him a whole lot of uh, the workbooks my clients have because I keep them all. Yeah. And he took right. it, they started doing research on that stuff. And then he's who, you know, he started introducing me into, uh, you know, different conferences and making, uh, you know, doing little talks before. So, you know, the, the architecture school and, and, and for uh, other things like that. So and he's just been a phenomenal friend and he's a, He's um he's he's a very smart guy and he does not abide fools. So I'd be scared to death. I I've worked with a lot of his research assistants and boy, you don't mess up. So yeah, right. He, he just treats me like a gold, but he he could tell you a new one if he wants. Yeah, if, he, if he wants to, you know, I had the pleasure of interviewing him because. Uh, a, a a listener actually reached out to me and said, look, um, there'd be a couple of people I'd love to hear you interview. And this was one of them. And I'm like, Sam Gosling. And I'm like, sure, no worries. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can get on to him. I said, can you introduce me in this? Oh, we, I don't actually know him. I just know of him. And I've read some of his stuff and stuff like that. I went, yeah, okay, no worries. I'll, um, I'll track him down. So I did track him down. And um, I think Sam was like, oh, what the hell's this guy on about, you know, like, and anyway, but he agreed to, I, I think I interviewed him, he was in Berlin at the time. Um, I, he, yeah, yeah I, I, inter I interviewed him and um, again, he, he introduced me to you. He was like, well, you know, look, I could take credit for all this work, but it isn't mine. It's um, the, my, my, partner in crime here is is Christopher and yeah he's done a phenomenal amount of work on this and he's got a phenomenal amount of data and we're trying to collect more data and so from that it became okay cool and then as you say like um you guys are speaking at a at the architects marketing institute um summit and again with that uh it, it, it's a big a big audience of architects um, and designers globally and my once I spoke to Sam I went this makes so much sense like this just makes so much sense there shouldn't be any fear in it there should only be elation and the fact that it's systematic it saves people from um, losing their track it, it, it keeps people in a line and when you can keep people in a line they get to a destination quicker than if they wander all over the page you know like and I just went what a brilliant tool and the other point that you just made before is is like so if you close you know 85 percent of your sales um if you think that every time uh, uh, most architects would get a phone call and they would go Yep, sure. They're so damn excited to get the phone call. Even if they're busy, they're so excited to get the phone call that somebody thinks that they're worthy of working for them, that they jump in their car and they drive, you know, 
four hours to a site and the guy doesn't turn up or they drive four hours to the site and the person stands there and picks their brain endlessly and they tell them everything about their vision of how the house could be or their property could be and all the rest. And then they go, okay, cool. We're interviewing a couple of others as well. So thank you for your time. And they drive four hours back and then eventually maybe if they're lucky, somebody calls them back or they get the balls to call that person back. And um, there's a, there's a, a nasty kind of, Thing that it doesn't just happen in architecture, it happens in the design world. Um, yes. with that, and mm. when when you go, well, so you make a, a you know, a, a go to a place, and if you can get an 85% success close rate, then well, it's because job's I'm done. what they actually want, not what they think they want. It's very simple. I mean, I'm a good salesman, and it, so it's, it's partially that, but really, it's because. This is essentially, in my experience, what people are actually after. Yes. And so they're not talking to anyone else that's, that's having that willing to have, that has that kind of conversation with them. So, and, and also, this process also does a lot of other very pragmatic things. For example, it makes it much easier to manage the budget. You know, because uh-huh. you, you know, budgets are all based on client priorities. Uh-huh. And, and finances are, are if you if you can get to people to prioritize what they love and care about, then you have ways of working the number to get to that sweet spot between what exactly. they want and pay for. Yeah. So, so tell me this. Um, if, if I want to adopt the true home system, what's the process? What do I have to do? What, what happens from here? I go, so Adrian goes, yep. He's going to become a true home, um, I don't know, whatever you call it, not consultant, but a designer. He's going to become a true home designer. Um, what do I do from here? What's next? What's the steps? Uh, well, I've been struck with that for close to 20 years now, but I'll tell you what, what I have done and what I'd like to do. Uh-huh. Uh, I've actually been approached by a lot of more probably interior designers and uh, you know people like that than architects, but a number of architects also. The the problem is they'll read they read about me either in Sam's book or the Times or you know after the Times articles, which are three different sets of them. I had a lot of international media too, so you know I got I got I got some media in Australia, for example, in Germany. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so I get calls off and on from people that are sort of moving this direction or have this sort of sensibility. And I just try to forward them because I'm at, I'm at this sort of a evangelical place with it. I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know I, I do have some proprietary uh, intellectual property around it, things like that. But sure. uh, it, it is not, uh, it, it's really something that I think just is, as a contribution, I, I think, I, I, you know, I, I think that it's something that I view that if I can get this distributed through other practitioners, that it would take a life well beyond me. And I've had a couple of other experiences with other major impossible projects that the same thing happened. You know, I, I was in the early, very early stages or founded something but it was just an idea as time had come. And then once other people signed on, it just went viral. Yeah. Yeah. And I also had the opposite where I've 
work my butt off and spend all kind of money and put years and stuff and it just collapsed never went anywhere. <laughs> so so I, I, I where I'm with this is very quite evangelical. So I, I normally try to help people and forward them. And so uh, what I'd like to be doing, and this is and we're kind of making that transition right now. Huh? I'm, I'm working my way out of building. I'm, I'm planning huh? to be out of the next, uh, well, at least within the next year. And that'll give me the ability to finish a lot of these writing projects that I have that are really yeah. advanced, nowhere near complete. Yeah. And also yeah. to do the thing I'd like to do, which is directly related to that, which is to, you know, create studio essentially around this type of thinking. And for designers, and then also the other people who might work with them, well-being mm-hmm. professionals, because really, uh, even in our situation, and I had some background without not not clinical, but I had some background. Yeah. But even I brought in the in we did a, a two-year uh, research back in 2002, where we gave a bunch of several clients a big break on their design fees, and, but they had to let me bring a clinical stuck. Psych- We lost audio there. Oh, we lost it totally. One sec. So, so before we uh, uh, lost connection there, um, you were just saying about how you were going to um, create uh, the you know what you're looking for for the future from it, and how people can integrate with the True Home Workshop. And with that, uh, you were saying how that the building that you're going to you know sort of stop the building side of what you do and focus on more on this. So can you? Tell me about that and how somebody gets involved um, to, to, to uh, become one you know, of these honestly, geniuses. I, I mean, I've been looking for collaborators, of which I found a few, but not near what I would like. And not only that, programs that may be interested in this kind of work, uh, for almost from a year or two years into it, once I began to realize what it was, uh, so... Uh, Mostly what it's been now is people just get interested in it. It's not very formal and they will call me and, uh, and I've, I've got I've, with a few of them, I've, I've shared the workshop and then, but you know, it, it's going to have to be a bit of a participative thing. So I yeah. do think in the world, it would be exactly what you're saying. You would have to get in a room with, uh, you know, a, a number of designers that were interested in this. And then what I've envisioned is also people who are enlisting professionals, because I think at the best, this process would be best treated by people who had more expertise in either than I do. I just happen to have a particular combination of experience that allows me to do both things in an adequate way. But I believe that this, but this process has a much greater potential that I'm going to fulfill. So anyone who is seriously interested in this, and and I mean by serious, uh, that uh, is interested in doing something that would allow me to make a living yeah. outside of my, my design yeah. and construction firm. Yeah. 
Serious uh, enough to, to pay for the opportunity. Right. <laughs> and, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm very interested in that. And I, and uh, it's really how I see what I'm going to do with the last part of my life. That and write about it. I think the so, other um, thing, to, to just interrupt there, if they're serious enough about doing something, and I think the other thing that would be really valuable is that they're serious enough to share the data um, so that you and Sam can continue the work that keeps layering in the value beyond that. I think that, that well, would be a really is, key point too. Uh, see, that's the thing that's different about me and Sam. He really is an academic. He's a research <laughs> academic. Okay, I, I am, I'm, I'm a, an apply, everything's applied with me. So yeah. I'm very theoretical, but it's after the fact. I, I did it all, invented it, and then I start trying to figure out why it works. See, so I'm the, I, it was just that's really where I am. So I, uh, I and I think that that's actually been extraordinarily useful because everything I've been doing with it is applied. You know, yeah, this is all world work, and and I and so I've been able to create a business model in addition to just to perhaps what I think is a, a better way to approach this kind of work. So, so that's really the thing that I think is critical. And I think if it's, if you don't if you're driving something, especially in a relatively staged, staid industry like architecture, it's very traditional mm-hmm. and, and, and very dominated in many ways by academic architecture mm-hmm. and therefore by tradition and history and all this stuff. And if you don't have a business model, you're not going to get a lesson to much. <laughs> that, that's it. I, I, I'm with you. I go, and that's why I go. Um, it's certainly something that I want to explore. And um, I know that there's plenty more like me. I know that uh, Janine, who is um, a colleague of mine, she's already reached out to you based off Sam Gosling interview. Um and things like that, like I think that it'll resonate with a certain number of uh, people in the in the community, and then getting some sort of groundswell to that, um, I, I'm all in for that. And especially with the interior design side as well, we have some amazing interior designers that I've interviewed, and more that are coming. No, I, um, actually, I've found that the designers are actually much more automatic because they're so much oriented towards emotion. Yes. I mean, that's mostly what they're selling. So, yeah. so they, 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 in fact, I've run into large numbers of interior designers who have a little codged up, sim, much, much simpler versions yeah, so, of this. Sort of ideas of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, I, oh, sorry, go. Well, I, I was just going to say, because I didn't have much time, this isn't really as uh, unique honestly in academia what it is is that because you know there's the entire world of ergonomics of human factors type disciplines there's evidence-based design inside of architecture you know and when i go to architecture schools i grab my iphone in front of all the students and go why don't we build houses like this this yeah. was designed to completely work with your mind and your body just why intuitive. is that not how we're doing houses and then the second thing about it is that from my point of view, it's a moral imperative. Uh-huh. If you have the ability, if there was actually a way to create environments that are literally therapeutic and tailored specifically, in other words, you could prescribe a particular kind of a house to have people be more 
financial going well yep. and, and have a yep. experience of life and you don't do that, what does that mean about you? It, it, you that's know? the moral responsibility. <laughs> I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. Well, we're, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, but with that, I'm looking forward to seeing you on uh, Tuesday next week. I think it's my Tuesday, maybe or Monday or something um, with Sunday. Sam. Now the fifth at the summit, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm also really interested in taking further this uh, the, the true home thing, and also being a promoter of it from from that point of view. I think that it's a uh, from what I understand so far, and what I will understand very soon. I go, this is something that's so well, valuable I, I, to I the client. A complimentary uh, copy of the workshops, so. I, I I'll have, I'll have a read. Really, yeah. Yeah. You'll either never call me again or are you might. <laughs> <laughs> I'll likely be on the phone next week saying, what the hell happens when this happens? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to, I'm going to have a little read of that for sure. Um, and I'm um, based on lots of things. I think the moral responsibility is one thing. Um, the other is, is that uh, if it makes the client that, that much more relaxed and creates that much better home for them, then that's yeah, another huge thing. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we, we, yeah, That's exactly how we do it. We form a team with the clients. Yeah. It's not a top-down situation. This and is me. That yeah. in itself, that people can participate and, they, and the elements of the house are somewhat of their own creation in places. Is a, yeah. It's an extraordinary thing for people, you know, they because they own somebody else's idea. It's like that's the one they came up with. Uh, look, I think that it's so valuable to um to 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 work with your client, not for your client as such, um, so that it is a team. And and I also believe that in the best world scenario, you work with the contractor because that person's going to put the place together. And if they don't have the same essence, values, and um, uh, what would I say, essence, values, and deliberate desire to work with the client that way, then the team's not a match. It, it takes, well, it, takes yeah, a lot yeah, of faith on the clients. Why I'm in design build, so yeah. it's one continuous process, but also yeah. it's, um, you know, uh, that, that's also why those emotional goals are listed on the drawings right under the name of the room, so that okay. you can carry forward that intention I, with the whole process. I love that. I just so love that. That that was a light bulb moment that I wrote down. That was one of those that I was like, oh, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you say this is, you know, fun, exciting, da-da-da-da-da, versus this is relaxing, nurturing? I used to, oh, and, you know, I used to think, you know, it's in rural Texas when I started <laughs> this. And, and I lived in a county that was about 97% conservative Republicans. So when I cooked this up, I thought, you are insane. No yeah, man, gonna, no you're going to be hanging outside the courthouse, buddy. <laughs> you know what it was in is that I already had ladies coming in. They would go cut out all these magazine things. They come with these big, fat notebooks. And that's what I realized. Well, maybe they will do all that work, you know? It's true enough. You know? <laughs> I totally get it. I, I totally get it. They will. They will. And, you know, I, I have a little thing with my wish list. So it's nowhere near as great as this document. But my wish list, it says, um, this is, and when you, you made this point before about, you know, they both do it in a couple, they both do it. 
I, my wish list says you do this separately. And in fact, you do it as if you're not married. You do it as if you do not have a partner. You, I want you to be the selfish, Absolutely. the most selfish you that ever existed. That, that's exactly the lecture I give them. I said, this is a time that you'll be utterly selfish, and particularly women need to be yep. constant. Because very, very mothers, they, yeah. people who used to be nurturers. So, so I, I get all over them. I'll, I'll slap their wrist with a ruler like I'm a third grade teacher. <laughs> I mean, like, so it, it does take that. You have to, yeah. you know. I, I say to them. People will sell out of themselves so easily. Easily, you know? yeah, yeah. I, I, I like them to write their list separately and I go, and if your marriage is good for this or your partnership's good for this, um, right. you can combine a third one. Of, of both of yours, because I make them categorize in hierarchical things, you know, three just different structures. If you can combine it without needing a marriage counselor, if not, I will, I will look at them both and then we will have a discussion that combines it. And my sole reason for that is the combination piece is I want to see who gave away their number one items. Yeah. I want to see who gave in because it tells me a story. About, yeah, well, that's that's the good thing about this because you know you might say like talking about your wife's job and what she does because that's why these it's not just doing the, the books it's also two very long meetings where they read yeah. every single answer and alternate and so then you can work to get their vocal tone you can see their body language yeah. and so 100 percent so since you already know where these powerful pockets of positivity and negativity are and and people will continually recycle these totally dysfunctional things or they live in situations where where something absolutely doesn't work but because it's been happening every day for 20 years it's reality and they, they don't even see the possibility of something else or being be. untrapped from it or being yeah. better christopher amazing man amazing this could go on we could do this all day i know easily oh, easily yeah. I, I i want to do some more of it but i want to do it once i've done the true home workshop and then maybe do a couple of other interviews along the way where we go, okay, let's talk about specific pieces so that I'm the better educated in what you, how you operate it um, than sort of the hokey bit that I've got so far. Um, mate, I so appreciate it. Really, really fabulous. Thank you for giving up your time. Well, it's and, awesome uh, to you. I'm very proud you're doing the kind of work you are because... I love uh, this thing. Not just your architectural work but i mean just this promotional work is very useful it's like there's so many good things out there that need to be shared that i think that this is one of the joys of having a podcast you hey hey believe me if there was only one listener and that was me that would be enough i get so much but again it's like you going well with what you do you're happy for other people to have a, a look into that so let's build that well, community the more we learn about each other, the more effective all of us are. That's yeah. essentially what A hundred percent. So thank you so much, man. Really, really Ooh. appreciate it. And uh, right. there's plenty more stories we're going to tell. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> we'll you post remember them. what I told you about, about picking up your kids late, right? Yeah, right. My kids are in their forties, and they still remember every time I ever did it. <laughs> so get off your phone here and go get that kid. <laughs> I'm gonna go and do it. I'm gonna go and do it. Um, <laughs> have a brilliant afternoon, and uh, I look forward to talking to you or being in the audience on Tuesday or my Tuesday okay, or Monday. Right.
Take care. Well, we'll post all your socials. We'll post all the ways to get hold of you, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we'll put this podcast up pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I can I can say no, so I'm not too worried about I'm at the early stage of wanting to be exposed rather than, in fact, I'm frustrated with not being stressed. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, expose me. Brilliant, brilliant. We will. We'll let them stalk right. you. Take care. Right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.